Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. My Master God, I am desired to preach today, but I go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people might be edified with divine truth, that an honest testimony might be born for Thee. Give me assistance in my preaching and prayer with heart uplifted for grace and unction. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject with fullness of matter and clarity of thought, proper expressions, fluency, fervency, and a feeling, of, a feeling sense of the things I preach and grace to apply them to men's consciences. Keep me conscious all the while of my defects and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Help me to offer a testimony for thyself and to leave sinners inexcusable and neglecting thy mercy. Give me freedom to open the sorrows of thy people and to set before them comfort and considerations. Attend with power the truth preached and awaken the attention of my slothful audience. May thy people be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and help me to use the strongest arguments drawn from Christ's incarnation and sufferings that men might be made holy. I myself need thy support, comfort, strength, holiness, that I might be a pure channel of thy grace and be able to do something for thee. Give me then refreshment among thy people and help me not to treat an excellent matter in a defective way or bear a broken testimony to so worthy a Redeemer, or be harsh in treating of Christ's death and its design and end from lack of warmth and fervency. And keep me in tune with thee as I do this work. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 22 again. Matthew chapter 22, and as we've looked over the past couple of weeks, we've had various uh, challengers coming to Jesus. We've had the Pharisees uh, and the scribes and the Herodians and the Sadducees, uh, and now we're going back to the Pharisees again this morning. And so just to remind you of the context of, of this passage, this is all, all these conversations are happening in the same setting. They're in the temple here. It's very normal for people to be teaching the temple and others to come up and ask them uh, questions about the scriptures or different things like that. And so as these different ones are coming, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to, to stump him with a question or get him to say something against scripture so that they have grounds uh, to persecute him. And yet, as we've seen in every case, uh, he destroys all of their arguments. He is able to answer them because not only does he know the scriptures, but he is the one uh, who was there when they were all written. Uh, everything that was made was made through him. And so the context of our passage this morning uh, is, again, a part of this conversation. And what we're going to see here is, is now Jesus is turning all the offensive. He's been allowing them to come to him. He has been uh, receiving their questions and responding to them. And now Things are turning around. Now it's Jesus' turn for him to ask them a question. So if you found your way there in Matthew chapter 22, 
We're going to be looking at verses 41, or yeah, 41 through 44 this morning, or 46, I'm sorry. Uh, If you found your way there, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, they asked, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. You may be seated. So the title of the message this morning is The Advancement of the Almighty. The Advancement of the Almighty. So again, this is the same audience that they're here. In the passage, you'll notice depending on how your Bible's formatted, verse 44 there is a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 110, which all Jewish people in that day would have considered to be a Messianic psalm. Psalm 110 was understood by everyone to be talking about the Messiah. And uh, it is the most quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament. I believe it's over 25 times in the New Testament various writers uh, quote Psalm 110 in reference to Jesus as the Messiah. So this was a very common passage to the Pharisees here that Jesus is dealing with. And and the bulk of our time this morning is going to spend uh, be spent actually kind of unpacking what does that mean in the context uh, of the Messiah. But this question in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Is the most important question that has ever been asked in the world. The way that you answer that question this morning will determine many, many things in your life. Who, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? And so we're going to talk about Jesus using this opportunity to advance. As I said, he's been on the defense for a while now, and now he's turning things around and he's pushing towards Calvary. He's pushing towards the cross. He knows that he only has a few days left at this point before he goes to the cross, and he is making the most of his time and is now challenging the authority of the Pharisees. They've been challenging him, and now he's challenging them. So the first thing I want you to see in our text this morning is the challenge advanced. Look again at verses 41 and 42. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So how is he... Uh, challenging them. The first thing he does is he challenges the perception of the Pharisees. What is their perception? They answer this question and they say, son of David. Now, for any Jewish person, that is a common answer to that question. If you, Even today, if you were to say, who is the Messiah going to be? If you were to ask, ask an Orthodox Jewish person, who is the Messiah going to be? They're going to say, he's going to be the son of David. And why do they say that? Because in the Old Testament, God made a promise to David that there would be a king from his line that would rule forever, uh, that he would rule the nations. And so it was clearly understood that the Messiah had to be a descendant of David. Jesus is challenging their perception of this. And the reason why is because he's also challenging the poverty of that position. What do I mean by that? The point that Jesus is going to make here is that being a, a king is not enough. It's not enough to save anyone that you have to be 
something else. And so Jesus was not only the son of David, but the Messiah has to be the son of God. He has what we call dual paternity. He has two fathers. He has an earthly father in Joseph, and he's descended from David both from his father and his mother. But we know that uh, he was not Joseph's biological son. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit uh, in, the, in the Virgin Mary. And so his father in his divine nature is God the Father. So Jesus is the son of God and the son of David. And this is the point that he's making to them here is that being the son of David is not enough to make somebody the Messiah. Solomon was the son of David, but he couldn't save their people from their sins. Um, he wasn't able to do those things. David had had many descendants. In fact, if you ever wonder why there's so much genealogy in the Bible, do you ever wonder that? You look at those books and you see this long list, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and it goes on and on and on. Do you realize that part of the reason why that is is because it's marking the fact that those people were not the Messiah? Because in the beginning in Genesis 3, this, this seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There's a promise there. And this guy died, and his son died, and his son died, and his son died. And we have thousands of years of records in the scriptures of the descendants from Adam and Eve, and they all died. But there's only been one who has died and resurrected. That was the descendant of David, and that is Christ. So how do we know that he's the Messiah? Because when you look at the genealogy, it stops with him. He is the son of David and the son of God. And so he challenged the poverty of his position because for him to just claim to be the son of David, remember just a few chapters ago in the triumphal entry when they're coming in, the children and others are proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David. They're calling him the son of David, which was a title for the Messiah. And when he asked them here who is the Messiah, they say, well, the Messiah is the son of David. So they understand that he's claiming to be the Messiah. He hasn't hidden that from them. He's been very open now about the fact that he's Messiah, but he's saying, calling me the son of David isn't enough. I, I can't just be his son. I also have to be his Lord, as Psalm 110 says. Why is this important? Um, if you look throughout church history, we have over 2,000 years of church history in the New Testament church now. We have many heresies. What is a heresy? A heresy is something that uh, if you believe this, uh, you you cannot be saved. Uh, you are not a Christian. So there are many people, even today, in our modern society, who would say that they're Christians, but they believe heretical doctrines. They believe something about Jesus or about salvation or about God or about Scripture that is so contrary to what the Word of God says that that person actually believes a whole different gospel. Um, if somebody denies the virgin birth, for instance, they are not a Christian. They can get everything else right, but if they deny the virgin birth, they're not a Christian. If they deny the, re the bodily resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus and his literal physical return, they are not a Christian. Um, if they say there is more than one God, they are not a Christian. So what are some other things specifically about Jesus? Uh, if you go back into church history, I, I'm, I'm just going to read a few of these. There's a long list. But all throughout church history, you have to remember, we didn't have all of the books uh, that we have for the Old Testament and the New Testament compiled until a couple hundred years after Jesus because they were being written. You have Paul's letters. So a lot of cities, they might have maybe one of Paul's letters. They all had a copy of the Old Testament, but maybe one of Paul's letters, maybe one of the Gospels. And then as those things were being copied and passed around, they began to kind of put everything together, but it took time. And a lot of them were living in the time. For instance, like the Apostle John is 
writing uh, the book of Revelation after Jesus had already ascended into heaven. And so some of those things in the book of Acts and others are taking place afterwards. And so they didn't have all the benefits that we have of 2,000 years, not only of having a complete copy of the Scriptures, uh, even if you didn't bring one this morning, there's one in the pew in front of you. We have very easy access to the Scriptures here in America. Not only did they not have that, but also they didn't have years of discussion about the teaching of Scripture. So one of the things that we learn from church history is trying to figure out the details of all of these doctrines. So we take for granted um, certain uh, things that we believe today, that there were people that fought, some people even died over simple doctrines that we believe. For instance, as much as I love uh, the great Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they would have put me in jail for being a Baptist minister uh, because they, they disagreed so strongly with the idea of believer's baptism. So we take for granted sometimes that uh, we have the freedom that we do and we have the doctrine that we do. So what are, what are some... Uh, some of these heresies in the early church that they had to deal with. Some of these are still around today, by the way. Um, I'm just going to read the statement of them. I won't read the big name. If you want later, I'll give you a copy of it. There's big names for all of these because theologians like use, like putting a sentence into one word, um, which is helpful when you're reading a lot, but it's not helpful when you're trying to explain to some, somebody uh, what it means. Statements like this. Uh, some people in the early church believe that God adopted the man Jesus at his baptism. So they said he was not a divine man, but when he was baptized and the Spirit came on him, God adopted him and gave him divine power, but he wasn't a divine man. Some people in the early church said that Jesus had a human body and soul, but that it was just his mind that was divine. Uh, some people said, uh, many people actually in the early church said that Jesus was created by God. Uh, in fact, Jehovah's Witnesses today still believe that heresy, that Jesus was created by God. Uh, some people believe that Jesus was only a spirit that appeared to be human. He didn't ever have a physical body. He just appeared to be human. Some, people, uh, some Jewish people said that he was the Messiah, but that he was not divine. Does that sound familiar to our text today? There were people that believed that in the early church. Some people said that Jesus' human nature w was absorbed by his divine nature so that he only had one nature. Some people say that Jesus was only one mode of God, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different modes of God that existed at different times, and that Jesus doesn't even exist today. It's only the Holy Spirit. Some people would say that uh, Jesus only has one nature when we understand that he has two natures. He is both fully man and fully God. And some would even say that Jesus only has one will between those two natures when we understand fr from Scripture that Jesus has both a divine will and a human will. He has two wills. Now, that gets really technical, and we can't go into all of that today. But all of those heresies came from people answering this question wrong that he asked to the Pharisees. Who, who, is, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, what is the nature of the Messiah? They all answered it wrong, and we've learned that throughout history. What do you, what do you believe about the divinity of Jesus this morning? Maybe you heard one of those statements, and you're like, well, that's kind of what I think. Well, we need to talk about that a little more afterwards. But what you believe about the humanity and the divinity of, the, of Jesus matters a lot. In fact, if Jesus is not fully human and fully divine, I would argue that we have no saving gospel. Uh, Jesus must be a man in order to die for men. And he must be God in order to not sin like men. So both are required. And so it's an important question. Sometimes we hear all these theological words and things and we get wrapped up in that and we say, well, it's just spiritual. I just believe the Bible. 
Well, that's fine. All those other people believe the Bible too, or they would say that they would. But the question is, uh, who is Jesus? When you talk with somebody, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, it doesn't matter what faith they say they're a part of or what nomination they say a part of. The, the number one question that they have to answer for you is, who is Jesus? And if they don't have the right answer according to Scripture, then that person's not a Christian. They can have all the appearance of it. We've talked about that. They can have all the appearance of it. They can have all kinds. Roman Catholics have a lot of correct doctrine. Did you all know that? There's, I mean, a lot of the doctrine that we have today came out of Roman Catholicism. They got a whole lot right. The gospel wasn't one of those things, but they got a whole lot of other stuff right. And so you can have a whole lot right uh, and die and, and, and go to hell because you were trusting in a Jesus that's not real. You have to trust in the real Jesus in order to be saved by the real Jesus. So it's important that we know who he is. The second thing that I want you to see in this text is the church advanced. Look at verses 43 and 44. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And again, this is a really key text. Uh, the New Testament church thought that this was one of the most important texts about Jesus. So what did they see here? What, what was it that they pulled out of here? Well, for one, you have to notice that Jesus says, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? If you'll look back in your Bible, a lot of the Psalms will say things like this is a Psalm of David or whatever. Psalm 110 doesn't necessarily say that, which means if there was a debate about who wrote it, Jesus, the one whose idea it was for David to write it, said it was David. And he said that David was in the Spirit. In other words, it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So does Jesus believe that the Psalms are inspired by God and that they're written by David? Yes. A lot of modern liberal scholars would say no. They would say, well, we think there's probably multiple authors to these different Psalms, and it's just passed down uh, from tradition. But if Jesus says that David wrote it, considering that he was there, I'm going to take his word for it on that. So... We see the church advanced here. Where, where does the church fit into this? Well, the first thing that we see, uh, this, this phrase, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now, there, as I was studying this, and I've, I've talked with Chris several times about this this week, this has really blown my mind. Um, and I, I don't know that I can, can give it all to you this morning, but uh, the, first, the first part, sit at my right hand. So we see that the Christ reigns in the right seat. What is the right seat? Well, the right hand of power in, in a throne is where the, the son of the king sits, right? In, in, in every kingdom, this is where the son sits. And it's a symbol, one of his honor, that the, on, the only one uh, that is like the king is the one sitting next to the king. There might be a whole lot of other people in the courtroom, but the one sitting next to the king is honored by the king. He's honored by the king. But the other thing is, is they rule together. So in a monarchy, whenever a king has a son, has a prince that's going to inherit that kingdom, he's sitting there at the right hand as a representation to everybody that sees, when I'm gone or when this throne is vacant, my son, my son is in charge. My son has the same authority that I do. That if, if my son tells you to do something, that's the same as me telling you to do it. That if my son makes a decision, that's the same as me making a decision. That we are ruling together. We are co-ruling. And so there's this picture here where the Lord said to David's Lord, he said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. 
And what Jesus is explaining here is that David's Lord is the Messiah. Now, they would have agreed. Uh, the Pharisees would have agreed that David's Lord was the Messiah, but they would not have agreed that he was equal with God or that he was the Son of God. And the point that Jesus is making is that's exactly what God told David to write down, is that the Messiah is the Son of God, that he is at the right hand of God himself, which is why he poses the question to them. Walter Chantry uh, said this about Jesus sitting in the right seat. He said, He is your Lord. You are His, and He is yours. However, you are not pals. He is Lord and Master. You are servant and disciple. He is infinitely above you in the scale of being. His throne holds sway over you for your present life and for assigning your eternal reward. A king is to be honored, confessed, obeyed, and worshipped. So as we get this picture... That, that David is prophesying here in Psalm 110, the first thing we see is him sitting at his right hand. This is where Jesus is seated today. You remember? You remember uh, he was standing once in Acts when Stephen saw him. You remember when Stephen was being killed, he looked up and said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. In other words, cheering him on, welcoming, welcoming him into glory. That's where Jesus is today. Uh, kids often ask the question, and if we're honest, we ask the same questions kids do. We just don't ask them out loud. But kids ask the question all the time. You guys have probably wondered, well, when Jesus went up into heaven, like, where is he at now? Well, I can't point on a map and show you, but I can tell you according to the Bible that there is a seat, a, a real seat next to God the Father somewhere, and that's where Jesus is sitting right now. Uh, and he's ruling from there. Uh, he's ruling his kingdom from there. So the Christ reigns in the right seat. But also, how do we see the church advancing here? The church rules in the right season. The church rules in the right season. What does that mean? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So how is it that God puts the enemies of Christ beneath his feet? How does he actually do that? He does it through the church. He does it through the Great Commission, through the power of the gospel. So how do, Jesus made this clear. He did overthrow the Roman Empire. It took about 300 years of gospel proclamation in the early church, and they eventually overthrew the Roman Empire. So they, they kept saying, when are, you, when are you going to come in your kingdom and we're ready to fight with you, Jesus? We're going to take up swords and we're going to fight the Romans. And he's saying, oh, you are going to fight the Romans, but you're, but you're not going to convert them by the sword. You're going to convert them by the gospel. And so they will bow the knee, even the Emperor Constantine and many emperors after that bowed the knee to Christ. They recognized that Christ was Lord, but it was the testimony of the church and the proclamation of the gospel that got to that point of proclaiming that. And so the church rules in the right season. Well, what is that season? That's the season that we're in now. We've been given a job by Jesus. We'll see at the end of this book of Matthew in 28, that great commission that he gave to the apostles that extends even today to the church worldwide, where we're going out and we're proclaiming the kingdom of God. We, we are not asking people to accept Jesus as Lord. We're letting them know that he is. Uh, so we are not making a request of someone, you know, uh, please come to Jesus, it's good for you. It's a matter of uh, you will have to bow your knee to him. Uh, he has earned your allegiance and you will serve him you can either do that as a son or, or as a slave only, um, but he invites you to be into his family, and that's the invitation that we give is adoption. So the father destroys the son's enemies 
by declaring through the church, under the direction of the Spirit, the defeat of all who oppose Christ. This is how he subdues his enemies under his feet. So I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. I, I like uh, action movies and war movies and uh, some of you have seen movies like that. Some of you may have even served in combat, and it's not uh, an entertainment for you. It's something that you've really experienced. But there's a thing that you use sometime in the movies. It's called a laser target designator, and it's this little, or an LTD. It's a little thing that they hold over their shoulder that's got a laser beam on it. And what you do is you use it uh, in the military to mark targets. So... Say you've got a big building or a big gun or something like that, you, you light that up with that laser and they can measure based on that laser where they need air support or where they need munitions to come and blow that location up. And so you mark it and then they send in the bombs and, and they blow it up. This is something they do in the military all the time. That is basically what prayer and evangelism does in the church. When, when we pray for God to save people or for him to change uh, the hearts of our leaders or for him to transform our community, we're basically lighting something up and we're calling in air support and saying, okay, Lord, these, uh, you got some enemies over here that need to be dealt with. Now, does this mean that we hate those people? No, because the beauty is, is that instead of killing them and destroying them, they're actually made alive. They're already dead. So uh, the weapons that we use actually bring people to life. They don't uh, tear people down with the gospel. But to, but to give you an image, uh, when, when we light somebody up, when we mark somebody with prayer and evangelism, when you share the gospel with somebody, that person then has a choice. That person's choice is they are either going to surrender uh, under, under uh, God's uh, supremacy or uh, they're going to be judged by God's wrath. That's the only two options. There's no middle road of like, you know, yeah, I think Jesus is okay. Well, Jesus isn't concerned whether you think he's okay or not. He's concerned whether you think he's Lord or not. That's, that is the standard by which he uh, judges uh, your heart. And so we want to light up the world. You know, we are not the air support. We can't change people's lives. That's, the Holy Spirit changes people's hearts, right? But what are we doing? We're marking people and just saying, what about that one, Lord? What about my family member? What about my neighbor? What about the person I work with? And you light them up with the gospel, and then they have to make a decision of, do I either surrender uh, to the Holy Spirit who comes to me, or uh, am I going to be under God's wrath? We don't control that part. That's between them and the Lord. But our job is to light up the whole world, to mark the whole world, and let them know that Jesus is coming and that there's going to be a judgment. So then let's talk about that. We see that Christ reigns in the right seat, the church rules in the right season, and the king returns in the right setting. So what is the setting where the king returns? This is the part that, that really um, got me this week as I was looking at this. Look at that verse again. Then the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Notice the word until there. When does he put, when does he leave the right hand of the Father? It's after the enemies are put beneath his feet. It's something I never really noticed before. So what is he talking about there, that putting your enemies underneath your feet? If you go back and you look at uh, Joshua chapter 10, verse 24, there's an example of this in the Old Testament. But this was a sign of, of dominance and shaming one's enemies. So in Joshua, for instance, they go and they conquer these five kings. Joshua brings the five kings in and has them all lay down on the ground in front of the, the leaders of the tribes of Israel. And basically they would prop their feet up on their neck. 
and, ba- and literally use them as a footstool. And it was basically the most humiliating thing that you could do to a person. And you have to understand, too, that in Eastern cultures, this is an honor-shame culture. So we don't have a lot of shame in America anymore. We just kind of uh, don't care what anybody thinks, and we do shameful things all the time um, in America. But in those countries, your honor and your respectability in front of people was everything. Your reputation was everything. And so God, the Father, is saying to Jesus, I, the Father, am going to make your enemies a footstool. I'm going to make them bow down in front of you, and you're going to be able to rest your feet on their necks for all of your enemies. And until I do that, you're going to sit at my right hand. Now, that's interesting, and, and, and as we go through the rest of Matthew, Jesus is actually going to be, begin to unpack that idea more. I'm going to let Chris explain all of that, but, um, but there's this idea here. of We know that he's seated at the right hand of the Father now, and we ask, when is Jesus going to return? That's the question, right? If we put on the sign out there, in time study, there'll be like twice as many people in here. That's, that's how a, a lot of people get people to come in the church, because everybody wants to know, you know, what's going on in the news, and what's the prophecy, and all that. Well, Here's a prophecy that David had. The prophecy that David had is God the Father will subdue all of Christ's enemies. And we know that the means by which he does that is by the gospel through the church. And that when God has finished subduing all of Christ's enemies, he will return from the Father. Which is why we take the gospel to every nation. Everybody has to hear. Every, everybody has to get marked by that target. And then, and then once, once they have had their opportunity, once those things have come out, then Jesus is going to return. Can I put a day or a year or a month on that? No, it might be 10,000 years from now. Uh, that's another thing I heard this week. What if we are the early church? Uh, that will uh, blow your mind a little bit to think about that. But regardless, we know that the gospel is going to go forth and that it's going to change hearts and that when God has brought all of his in, whoever they are, then the son is, is going to return. Uh, James Boyce said this, he said, Jesus is at God's right hand today, ruling over all things in heaven and on earth. This is God's doing, so it is not up to us whether Jesus Christ will be Lord or not. Jesus is Lord, and God has made him such. We can fight that lordship and be broken by it, or we can submit to his rule in humble obedience with praise. That's what we want to do this morning. So that's the church advance. And then the last uh, thing I want you to see in the text here is the cross advanced. Look at verses 45 and 46. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. So how is this advancing the cross? For a long part of Jesus' ministry that we saw in the beginning of Matthew, he was doing these miracles and signs and telling people, don't tell anybody about what you just saw. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. He tried to keep it under wraps. And then we see with his triumphal entry, the veil comes off. Of, yes, I am the Messiah. You can call me the Messiah. Uh, I, I am here to deliver my people. He's made all of that clear. And now, in these last few days that he has before he goes to the cross, he is just putting his foot on the gas. And we're going to see that starting next week because instead of the Pharisees accusing him, he's going he's gonna to come back again on the offensive and blast the Pharisees for the entire chapter of 23. <laughs> so just brace yourself for, for that because... Now, he's not hiding. He's not holding anything back. He knows that he's about to be crucified, and he's going he's to earn the anger that they're going to give to him. He's going to say the things that they don't want anybody to know about what's in their hearts in, in front of people. And so we see the cross advanced here because what did he do? 
after all the debates, three years now that they've been challenging him and debating him, they have nothing to say now. There's no more arguments that can be made. There's no way that they can trap him. He has literally shut their mouths with the word of God, and, and they have nothing else to say. It says no one even dared to ask him a question at this point. So he has soundly defeated them. So they were silenced early in Jesus' ministry. And, and why? Something interesting. Do you notice that the Pharisees never questioned Jesus' human lineage? So when people proclaimed that he was the son of David, did you notice that they never questioned that? The reason why is because up until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, all of the genealogical records for Israel were kept in the temple, which means they could go and look up Jesus' parents and actually trace their their entire lineage down uh, to David, which is part of why we can have it in the Bible too, is they were able to go and, and write these things. Because when the gospel writers, for instance, Luke says that he did a lot of research in his gospel, he would have been probably had access to those records to verify the lineage of Jesus. So it's interesting that he already silenced them in the beginning because if he wasn't actually descended from David, they would have shut his whole ministry down from the beginning. They would have said, well, the Messiah has to be the son of David, and we traced your lineage, and you don't directly descend from David, so it doesn't count. Um, and it's interesting to note that in Judaism, uh, the, the lineage is actually traced through the mother. So if you're a Jewish person, you're Jewish because your mother's Jewish. Even if a Jewish woman and a non-Jewish man marry each other, the child is still considered Jewish because the mom is Jewish. And so it's interesting that God or, uh, ordained it to be that way because that is exactly what happened with the Savior, is that he is very much Jewish because of his mother, and yet he is very much divine because of his father. We see both of those things again there. Uh, so MacArthur did a good job of pointing out that those records were there, and of course those records were later on destroyed in the temple, but they would have been able to go and, and look up these records to verify whether he actually was a descendant of David or not, and they never challenged him on that, which is pretty good evidence for us that there was, it was clearly understood that he actually was descended from King David. So they were silenced early in his ministry, but then they were silenced, silenced finally, finally in this text. Like I said, you know, it says nobody was able to answer him, and nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Now, now we can look at ourselves today and say, well, we obviously know the answer to that. How could he be David's son and David's Lord? Well, it's because uh, he is fully divine, because he was the divine word that John says existed from the beginning with God and was God. The scripture says that everything that was made was made through him. And so in his divinity, of course, he's David's Lord. He created David. And yet at the same time, he is also the son of David because as a man, he was born in the lineage of David. So in 2021, we look at this question and say, hey, we know the answer to that. The Pharisees didn't know. The Sadducees didn't know. The Herodians didn't know. But we know the answer to that. So it's easy for us to become uh, really arrogant about it of, man, these, fa these uh, Pharisees, they just must have been really dumb. They, they just must have not known the Bible. You know, of course, most of them memorized word for word the first five books of the Bible by the time they were 13. So I don't, I don't know that any of us have, have achieved that. But they knew their Bible, but we, again, we take for granted that we've had 2,000 years of history to help us understand that. We have the Gospels and Paul's letters and all these other things to help us understand and unpack um, the Old Testament and these different things. And so we shouldn't take that for granted. But, but what's the point that they're making here or that Jesus is making when he's silencing them finally? Here's what he's saying. Whoever rejects him rejects David's Lord. 
He's saying, if you're a Jewish person and you say that you believe in the Messiah and that he's the son of David, but you don't believe that he's the son of God, then you're not really a Jewish person. Which is one of the most offensive things that he could say to them. He's saying, you're actually denying the God of the Bible because you're denying me. Or as he said in other places, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, because he sits at the right hand, uh, if you want favor with the king, you don't reject his son. You can't, you can't reject his son. If you receive his son, that's the same as receiving him and his authority. And Jesus is making this point to them here of, listen, I know that you guys see that I'm the Messiah. I know that you see that I'm the son of David. You see the miracles I do, as Nicodemus pointed out to him. You, you see what I'm doing, and you're willing to accept me as the son of David. You're willing to accept me even as a political ruler, but you're not willing to accept me as divine. And if you won't have me as your Lord, then you won't have me at all. And if he was David's Lord, then guess who else he was Lord of? He was Lord of the Pharisees. He was Lord of the temple. Why was he able to go in the temple and cleanse the temple? Because it's his temple, and he can do what he wants. And so now he's finally explained to them. uh, They knew that he was the Messiah, but he has finally explained to them that he is divine. That was the evidence that they need to crucify him. He has clearly said at this point to them that he is the Son of God and that he is God. And because he's clearly revealed that to them, then uh, there's no other evidence that they need to accuse him uh, than to say he's basically putting himself in the place of God. Augustine said this, he said, Thus you have heard that Christ is both David's son and David's Lord. David's Lord always, David's son in time. David's Lord, born of the substance of his father, David's son, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, let us hold fast to both. The one of them will be our eternal habitation. The other is our deliverance from our present exile. So in conclusion, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Father, we thank you this morning that your Son, Jesus, is almighty. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom wasn't just advancing in Jesus' day. It wasn't just advancing in the early church or the great awakenings or revival movements here and there throughout history, but it's advancing today. Lord, help us to, to look further beyond our circumstances. If we turn on the news, if we look out on the street, if we see what's going on in our families, in our neighborhoods, and the different things that are going on, Lord, it's easy to be discouraged and to think, how could the kingdom be advancing? And yet, Lord, none of those things can stop you. You are almighty. Your son has all authority. Lord, thank you that we don't serve a Savior that's in a grave somewhere or that we have to look to a, a picture or a statue of 
but that our Savior is seated at your right hand right now. In fact, Father, the only way that you can even hear our prayers is because he is our high priest that intercedes for us. And we have access to you only because of him, because the veil was torn, that he is the veil that we must go through in order to have access to you. So, Father, this morning, I pray if there's one here that doesn't understand that, they've never seen themselves as they truly are and they've never seen their need of you that you would show them that they need you that lord even now we are shining the light on them that we are marking them so that they have to decide where they stand with you today before they leave they have to either submit to you as their lord and surrender their whole life to you or they're going to have to sit under your judgment and lord we don't want that for anyone here or for anyone that that hears what's being spoken and so we ask that you would do that work today, Lord. We know that the power has to come from you. It can't come from us. And so we want to be faithful to proclaim that word. For those who are here today who have just heard this, Lord, I ask that you would encourage them in their king, that we serve a victorious king that is powerful over sin, that, Lord, none of the mountains that are laid in front of us of our own personal sin, of difficulties, of circumstances, of persecutions, of trials, of health challenges, relational problems. There, there is nothing that's set in front of us that is impossible for you to move, that with you all things are possible. And give us hope today, Lord, and encourage our hearts that, Lord, if we will lean on you and trust not in our own understanding, and acknowledge you in all of our ways that you will make our path straight, that you will take those things away. And so help all of us as we prepare to come to your table this morning, Lord, to cast aside the cares and the challenges of this world and look to our victorious Messiah who has overcome death in the grave. Lord, there's nothing in this life that's harder to overcome than our own death. And you've already secured it for us in Christ. So help us, Lord, today to see you rightly as you are, as the Almighty. And it's in Christ's name.